Hello and welcome to Dialogos with me, William Milne, where we talk with some of the most interesting, insightful and influential people in the world. Today for our first episode, we are honoured to be joined by the historian, journalist, television presenter and host of the Rest is History podcast, Dominic Sandbrook. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Dominic. Thank you, William. It's a shame that none of the influential and important people could join you, so you had to make do with me instead. It's a great pleasure to be here anyway. (laughs) Really excited. Um, So to start off, I'm going to go very broad. Why do you do history? What makes you want to do history? Uh, It's fun. It's simple as that. Um, So the standard answer that people give... um, uh, is and I used to do um, history department open days when I was a university lecturer. So I was you know, very used to giving this answer myself and hearing my colleagues give it that history is good for you, that it's improving, it teaches you skills that other things don't teach you. What these skills were, I never the, the other things wouldn't teach you. I never quite got to the bottom of um, because all humanities subjects said the same thing about themselves, or the or history. Um, was sort of morally improving and politically improving because it would teach you to avoid the errors of the past. Not that it's ever done so, of course, in human in the human experience, because people go on making the same mistakes. So all of these reasons, I think, are basically just a reason to, for people who like history to sort of feel good about themselves, to make them feel important and worthy. Um, that they're doing, you know, they're reading about the Hundred Years' War and some tremendous battle. But, but actually, they're doing the, the Lord's work by, by doing this. This is absolutely splendid that they're, you know, that it's a government of social work. Well, actually, I think all of that is complete nonsense. Um, and the reason I do history is because I fell in love with it when I was about, you know, when I was tiny, when I was kind of five or six, really small. I loved knights and castles and battles, as frankly, lots and lots of little boys and indeed girls do. Um, and then I really was sort of bitten by the bug of story. So the narrative, the, the the propulsive force of a kind of riveting narrative, wanting to know what happens next, which is basically a very human instinct, because I think we are kind of creatures of narrative. And um, curiosity about other people, sort of voyeurism, to be blunt about it. You know, you want to find out the details of other people's lives. You want to find out the crazy and wacky things they got up to. You meet people um, through history who have been dead for hundreds of years, but you come to know them as well as you know, or indeed better than your own friends and family sometimes because you're privy to all their secrets and all their innermost thoughts and so on if they've if they've been diary keepers or something like Samuel Pepys or somebody. Um, so for me, history is just enormously good fun. It's really interesting. I'm interested in people. I'm interested in what happened next and why things happen. I'm interested in places um, that I'll never be able to visit because they've passed into, you know, the dustbin of history, so they no longer exist. Um, things I'll never see, smells I'll never smell, all of those kinds of things. I think it's the ult- it's, it's it's to some extent it's the ultimate form of escapism, but it is also uh, a brilliant way of understanding the world we're in now. Um, but I think the the best reason to do anything is that you enjoy it, and and it's. I mean, I don't want to sound utterly trite, but it's a good laugh. And I think history is really, really good fun. Yeah. So do you not think that history has some sort of social benefit, as in, can it better society as a whole? Or is it purely an enjoyment discipline? Um, uh, it doesn't make society better. That is absolutely certain. Um, what it, 
It has a social benefit insofar as it's socially essential. So all societies that have ever existed have had a sense of their own history. They've seen themselves as part of a narrative. So a society without history is actually unimaginable because even societies that have tried to reboot history, as it were, so the French Revolution, where they restarted the calendar, or Cambodia in the 1970s when they went back to year zero under communist rule, the communist Khmer Rouge, they still had a sense of history they had a sense of re reacting against a kind of sinful past. So all societies have a sense of history. Um, does it make us that your, your question was, you know, does it have, I mean, the implication is, you know, we, we become better people through our knowledge of history. I mm. don't believe that's true. Uh, I'll give you two examples of that. Some of the worst people who've ever lived have had a tremendously powerful sense of history. So to give you two obvious examples, both Hitler and Stalin, were very interested in history. They read a lot of history books. They had a very strong sense of their own place in history, of what history had done to their countries. They probably knew no, more about history than the most than, than the, the average, as it were. So a knowledge of history doesn't make you a better person, a better politician, or, or any of those things. I mean, it can do, but it doesn't necessarily do that. Uh, the other thing is that societies that are very, very passionately interested in their own history and... Um, with a strong sense of, for example, historical grievances or the crimes of the past and so on, they tend up to uh, – they're often kind of terrible places. They, I mean, a, a great preoccupation with history is usually the precursor to some hideously bloody civil war because you're very conscious about all the grievances and all the slights of the past and so on. So the number of times you read about, let's say, the violence in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, the outbreak of the civil wars in Yugoslavia in the 1990s, those those kinds of things. I mean, the early sort of chapters of any books on those things would always tell you about some old, you know, some old crone who'd been told as a girl that, mm. you know, their neighbours had been really brutal to them and had murdered so-and-so back in the mists of time and had never forgotten it and passed it on. So actually, in some ways, you could argue that it might be quite healthy for societies to forget, that there's something very, very healthy about forgetting and about burying the past, as there is in sort of obsessing, you know, that can be more healthy than just obsessing over it and sort of becoming fixated on imagined um, victimhoods and so on. In terms of this whole question of lessons from history that we've been talking about, um, I was listening to a Rest is History uh, podcast. The very back, best podcast, apart from the, very, the best podcast in the world. Yeah. That exists. Yeah. Um, I am joyfully addicted to that podcast. I love it so much. Um, back in the archive, you're talking right. about the, seven, the lessons of history, and you talked about how um, you believe that historians, um, they just pick patterns from a mass of information. Mm -hmm. That's the word, that's the phrase you used. Could some people call that slightly pessimistic? As in, as in surely history is about trying to get to the objective truth. But if history is about all these subjective truths being proposed and these narratives trying to yeah. be read into histories, surely that's slightly worrying. I'm going to give you an example, William. Have you ever been to a party? Yep. <laughs> so think about the, you know, a party that you went to. Let's say there were, I don't know how many people there. Tell me how many people were there. Uh, let's just say 30. 30. So the next day, if I asked all 30 people to write down what had happened at the party, to describe what mm. the party had been like, they wouldn't all, they would all write, they would write 30 different things. Am I right? Yes. Which would be the objective truth? Well, I would argue that they are all retellings of the objective truth, but I wouldn't say that they have 
would you would you argue they the thing I'm having is historians don't they come in with an agenda to propose a narrative, but if you're writing about a party, you don't necessarily yeah. have an agenda to spin what happened. No, I might not have an agenda in the same way that I might not have an agenda yeah. uh, when I if I wrote about the reign of Ramesses the second because I'm so mm. distant from it in time. I don't yeah. have a dog in the fight. I couldn't give a damn, you know. Mm. Ultimately, but I'm still subjective when I'm writing about it because. Mm. I'm still standing somewhere as a 21st century person. I have, you know, um, prejudices and predilections of my own. So, for yeah. example, I might be the kind of person who prizes stability and order, or I might be somebody who prizes free thinking and, you know, radical experiment. So, for example, writing about your party, um, let's say, I mean, to give, you know, I don't know what the party was like, but imagine it was a very debauched party. I even if I don't have, an, as it were, an overt agenda, um, I might be this kind of person who thinks that's absolutely tremendous, and that's what teenagers should be mm. doing. Or I might be the kind of person who thinks, "Oh, that's that's very poor." Yeah. I'll, I'll sort of, or, you know, my sympathies might lie with the person who sat at the edge, feeling a bit miserable, not really joining in, or they might lie instinctively with the people at the centre of the crowd who are having the most tremendous uproarious time. Um, so my subjectivity might be rooted not would be rooted not so much in my ideological political positions, but it would just be the kind of person I am, my my choices. Yeah, you know that if I read your thirty accounts and I tried to weave them into an as it were objective account, so I'd be like, well, twenty five people might say this happened, you know, five disagree, but I'll go with the twenty five. I mean, the twenty five could still be wrong for one thing. But also the choices that I would be making all the time, the things that I think are interesting, I mean, they would differ from historian to historian. So although yeah. I think it's fair to say, I mean, basically at some level we have to accept that the past actually happened, I think the way we narrativize it, the way we turn it into a story and write it down is by definition subjective. can't be yeah. otherwise. It's a bit like the other example I sometimes give is painting a landscape picture. You know, again, if I got you and your 29 people from the party to stand on a, on a hill and paint the landscape, they would paint 30 different pictures, yeah. understandably, because each of you is standing somewhere slightly different, so you're yeah. seeing something different. But each of you is bringing your own artistic skills, your own interests, all of those things. It doesn't mean that any of your paintings are wrong. So in other words, I think the actual the the division between subjective and objective history I don't actually think that's very helpful because I think, you know, history, uh, unless history is being, I mean, history as a sort of literary, uh, as a literary product has to be subjective. There has to be somebody who writes it. Um, So to go back to your thing about the lessons of history, the reason that that makes it difficult to then extract lessons from history is who's telling you the history, you know, who's drawing the lessons. And what I think tends to happen, I mean, actually, funnily enough, historians don't generally draw lessons from history. It's a common misconception. But actually, the people who draw lessons from history are almost always either politicians or newspaper columnists. And they basically draw the lesson from history that they wanted to draw. So the newspaper columnists, and I know this because I do write newspaper columns, they decide on the subject of the column, and then they decide I'm going to have to pick three historical examples to prove my case. Politicians, you know, the classic thing is, that the, the politicians always go back to, and I probably mentioned this in the Rest is History podcast, is the 1930s. Is the lesson of the 1930s that you don't appease dictators? You know, or is the lesson of the 1930s that you shouldn't have given harsh you know, terms in the Treaty of Versailles, you shouldn't humiliate great powers? I mean, 
the lessons basically you draw the lesson you want to draw to suit your political agenda i think so so in some ways i think it's better to get away from the idea of subjectivity and objectivity and indeed the idea of um uh lessons from history because also the thing, weird thing about the lessons from history is it basically just is turning history in a into a kind of homework which it shouldn't be so making it sound quite boring and b making it just sound like a means to an end so the importance of doing history is that you can have some really tedious policy proposal in 2022. That's not what history is fun for. The point of history is because it's we're human beings and we're interested in other human yeah. beings. Um, so that's it's as simple as that to some extent. Do you think we're at risk of um, being overly moralistic about history? As in, obviously we know there are atrocities in history, but that's not necessarily your aim is not just to say that's bad and that's good but right. there are other aims so do you think maybe activism strays into yeah i don't think do history i think basically if you want to be an activist be an activist don't be a historian lots of his activists hmm. lots of historians are, are sort of um i believe that the term is cosplaying as activists um and they and they are they're sort of very lazy activists who think that by you know Tweeting about history usually rather than writing actual books, they, um, that they are they are furthering the cause of human progress, which I think is again gibberish. Um, I think, uh, frankly, I mean, I am a sort of you know I was kind of of a generation that was very quite unactivist because born in the seventies, you know, school in the Thatcher years, and then came of age in the nineties, which was sort of the heyday of irony and not being committed to anything and all that sort of thing. So, um, but but I but I genuinely think it, the best history is not moralistic. I mean, there sometimes can have a moral energy, um, but I think there has to be more to history than moralism. Um, I think a lot of the commentary around history is is almost kind of utopian. It's, it has an idealism that I don't have at all. I mean, so for the, the example, I was funny because I was talking to a good friend of mine who's a professor at Oxford about this on Friday. We went out for dinner and we were sort of setting the world to rights and chatting about moralism and the, and the moralism that has sort of infected history. And I said, you know, the thing is, a good example is the um, actually the thing I'm writing about right now for children, which is the um, landing of the conquistadors in the Americas and the fall of the Aztec and Inca empires. So... I think it's generally recognised now the conquistadors arrived and they behaved quite badly. You know, they kind of enslaved people and they they killed people and they sort of swaggered around with their Spanish beards, oppressing the locals. And um, now there are two ways of looking at that. And the most common way now is to sort of, you know, rend your garments, to weep and wail, to say this is absolutely terrible, you know, or isn't this awful? I mean, I just don't get that at all because I kind of think, well, of course they behaved really badly. I mean. That's why they were there. They were there because they wanted loads of gold, and they wanted, to, and and that was the point. And they wanted to impose their their religion because they believed they had a religion. You know, they, that was doing God's work. And they, of course, they behaved really badly, and they sort of tortured people and enslaved people because that's what human beings do. Now, some people would say, "Oh, what a terribly complacent and wicked thing to say." You know, uh, he had such a bleak view of human nature. All this, but I just think, frankly, it's impossible to. You know, I mean, you can see my study. The listeners can't see it. There are shed loads of books. Like there are thousands of books about history, and most of them people behave quite badly. Um, human beings have a tremendous capacity for evil, and left to themselves, people will often behave greedily, selfishly, cruelly—all these kinds of things. 
I don't look on that and think, oh, whoa, oh, despair, I shall weep and wail or condemn them, because I just think, know your subject. The human animal is capable of great decency and kindness and all these kinds of things, but it's also capable of great wickedness. And I think to sit there and sort of say, well, I should give you 7 out of 10 because you were very nice, you, unfortunately, 2 out of 10 because you had some slaves, you, naught out of 10 because you massacred a load of, you know, um, indigenous um, Peruvians or whatever. I just think it was completely boring and pointless. It's completely uninteresting. It also sets you up as the hanging judge, puts you on a pedestal when you're probably, you know, whichever, how many of us are wearing sweatshop trainers or driving gas guzzling cars or going on holidays on jets and all these kinds of things. I mean, lots of things for which our successors will no doubt judge us harshly. So I just think it's, a, it's actually, it's not even that intellectually, I think it's um, a slightly fraudulent exercise to sit in judgment on the bus. I just think it's really boring. Um, mm. I just think it's pointless. Let's just assume, I always think the whole thing with statues, why don't we just assume that everybody was villainous and then we're fine. Let's just say they're all bad. And then, then you don't have to argue anymore. Let's assume that everybody who lived before us, which they did, had attitudes that we would regard as as wrong, and that let's assume that our successors will say that of us. And once we've all agree, if we all agree that, then we can just crack on and enjoy the subject instead of moaning, groaning the whole time. Yeah, it seems on the subject of statues, I sort of want to maybe go into that. Yeah, would you agree that it's a bit narrow to? Um, assume that people in the past just had our moral as in i don't think anybody in the past was waving a pride flag or something it's yeah. it's it's quite it's quite maybe i mean it's quite obvious we don't really have to look at people's quotes that people aren't going to be very progressive in the past mm -hmm. so maybe it's not very helpful i suppose to to be so narrow in how we judge people in the past right we should be more tolerant no, we should be more tolerant yeah. exactly exactly we shouldn't also be so suffused with our own self-importance that we think the only way of judging people in the past is to compare them to ourselves and to see the, the more similar yeah. they are to us we give them big ticks the more distant they yeah. are in their moral attitudes or their intellectual assumptions we give them a big red cross. I mean, that's just a completely arrogant and foolish thing to do. Um, yes, I completely agree with you. I mean, let's just take uh, your um, your pride flag example. Um, and let's take it out of Britain because people get the issue of statues in Britain gets so hung up with sort of either patriotism or self-flagellation. Uh, go over the channel to France or to um, Italy or something or Spain and have, think about the statues that are standing in, in city centres there. How many of them believed in gay marriage? Zero. Zero. How many of them believed in transgender rights? Zero, yeah. And zero. How many of them believed in tons of things that we take for granted? Probably zero again. How many of them believed in the, that men and women had e absolutely equal capabilities intellectually, you know, and sort of morally and culturally and so on? Again, probably zero. I mean, you're going to take them all down? Is that the position? I mean, even with, um, let's say, uh, the most incendiary subject of all, which is slave owning, uh, so the Edward Colston statue being toppled in, in Bristol. And, and you know, this, the, the sort of the topplers put up a very impassioned case. Almost every statue of a Greek or Roman is of somebody who owned slaves. Um, every Viking traded. Now, the Viking economy depended um, 
more than anything else on trading slaves. The Ottoman Empire ran on the back of slave labor. If, therefore, this is a sort of morally transcendent issue that eclipses all else, then are they are they all going to come down to every Ottoman sultan, every every Roman emperor, every Greek philosopher who lives in a world of slavery and doesn't question it and indeed maybe has slaves? I mean, obviously, that would be a very strange way to approach the past to elevate any one moral issue and to say this we have now decided we are the arbiters and this is the benchmark by which we judge all our predecessors i think basically it goes back to what i was saying before if you assume that human beings are weak and sort of sinful as it were i mean um then these things won't surprise you and you won't need to ju- you'll just think well you know yet more weak and sinful people on statues but they probably had great qualities that is why they're there um and and that and then I think that is just, frankly just a more sane and healthy way to to judge our predecessors. They were flawed and frail as we are, um, and I think that's that's a better way of approaching it than to say, you know, there's black and white heroes. And, I mean, of course, there aren't heroes and villains. It's such a dopey way to approach the past. But surely, on the flip side, you could say extreme examples. Say there was a statue of Hitler that was up from the past. Would we mm-hmm. keep that out up in public? Surely that could incite. So it, it could it, it could incite hatred and um, violence. Same with maybe a slave owner. People could, um, especially people quite extreme, could use that to champion yeah. their cause. So surely on the, they could on the opposite side. They could do. So I think there's a couple of interesting things to unpack there. First of all, the statues of Hitler. Um, obviously, all the Nazi statues, I mean, the, I don't actually know if there were Nazi mm-hmm. statues, but if they there were, they came down at the end of the Second World War. Um, so they're gone anyway. Uh, the, the better parallels maybe then for communist statues, which were still standing. And I sort of do have mixed feelings about that. I can completely understand why people in the former communist empire do want to take those statues down, and maybe I would too. But there is still part of me that thinks it's kind of a shame to some extent because they're part of the historical fabric, you know, of these cities. Um and that when they're gone, they're gone. You know, you can't. Rep- I, I mean, I understand, of course, history rolls on. The tide of events carries things away. Um, but there is part of me that thinks that has conflicted feelings about it. The other, I mean, let's say your, your issue about people congregating outside statues. I mean, obviously, if there was a statue of Hitler and far right people were, you know, meeting around it, that's kind of an issue that you'd want to resolve, obviously, by taking it down. Uh, the thing about slave slave owners is an interesting one. So in Britain, there's no constituency that argues for the rest, the restitution of the restoration of slavery. So let's say the old Edward Colston statue in Bristol. As far as I'm aware, and, and you know, I'm happy to stand corrected, but I'm pretty pretty confident mm. there were never any gatherings of pro-slavery advocates at the feet of the Colston statue, saying, you know, bring back the good old days of the 18th century. So I don't think that was really an issue. But where that is an issue is in the United States with Confederate statues. So the Confederate statues, and there are hundreds of them, they were put up as a deliberate statement of the kind of restoration of white supremacy about three or four decades after the American Civil War. So they were put up at the turn of the 20th century. And then again, there was another spate of putting up statues at the beginning of the civil rights era. And they were put up very deliberately to kind of humiliate African Americans and to restate the South's commitment to its its oppressive racial order. 
So in that case, I mean, it's not really my place to offer an opinion because I'm not I'm not American and I don't live in that area. But I can see that that is a clearly a far more conflicted issue, and that if I were black and living in Georgia or Virginia, I might well find it a personal affront to walk past a statue of Robert E. Lee or whoever that I knew had been put up specifically to humiliate and degrade me. Um, but I don't really think that's true of any statue in Britain because um, obviously our uh, history is different. So I don't think – so even the statue of Colston, let's say, that which was thrown into the sea because he was a – um, an investor in the slave trade that wasn't put up because he, in in order to taunt mm. people about, or to revel in his, um, it was put up as a, to, to, because of his philanthropy to the city of Bristol. Now you can say because, of course, that was off the back of the slave trade, therefore people don't like it. But it's not quite the same situation. Um, thank you for that uh, explanation. Sorry, very long. No, I really rambling. enjoyed it. Um, um, to lighten things up from. Um, statues of authoritarian dictators um yeah i find that quite a light subject actually <laughs> but maybe some of your listeners won't um i want to ask what's the funniest story from history that you know of what what would you think if you had to pick <laughs> one story from history because beyond all the war and the yeah. death there's many funny parts if you could pick one funny maybe a funny figure from history that you could pick out who would it be uh, can I give you two? Yes, can I yes, give you two? yes. So um, I'll give you one that if you've listened to my podcast, you may be familiar with. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, Kaiser Wilhelm II had a party at his hunting lodge um, for his senior officers and kind of, you know, his sort of court cronies. And uh, the Kaiser had recently had a sort of tough time from the German press because one of his close aides, I think a guy was called Philipp von Eulenberg, had been exposed in a kind of homosexuality scandal. So he was feeling very bruised and he was very down and they went out hunting and they came back to the hunting lodge and they started having a few drinks and you know, kind of get together. And one of the chief of his sort of, of the sort of general staff or whatever was a very big burly bloke, massive, like a real kind of like a casting agency had supplied a Prussian general, like he was hewn from wood. He had his head was colossal, massive moustache, shaved hair, all that sort of stuff. Uh, he was called Dietrich Graf von Hülsenhäsler. <laughs> and at some point in the course of the evening, he excused himself and slipped away. And then Dietrich Graf von Hülsenhäsler reappeared in the room. And these burly German gentlemen were sitting around drinking their schnapps and eating meat, roast, meat, roasted meats and sausages of various kinds. And there was... Dietrich Graf von Husenhäsler, and he was dressed in a pink tutu, ballerina tutu. And he started to do these this dance. Like, and according to the sources, he did various kind of pirouettes and capers and jumps. And in the course of one of these capers, he unfortunately had a heart attack and <laughs> dropped dead. So you can imagine. So he dropped dead, and they tried to revive him, mm. but there was no good. He had had his heart attack, and it had carried him off. And there he was in his pink tutu. The doctor arrived, but it took ages for the doctor to arrive. By the time the doctor pronounced him definitely dead, rigor mortis was setting in. So it was a real struggle for them to get him out of his tutu. And so the evening ended, which the Kaiser had hoped would cheer him up, ended with this disastrous scene of all these sort of sweating, enormous Germans, <laughs> slightly slightly tanked up, 
struggling desperately to get their comrade out of this um, pink ballerina's outfit. So that's um, incident number one. And uh, number two is um, uh, in the 1960s, the British Prime Minister was called Harold Wilson, Labour Prime Minister. And the man he had defeated to win the Labour leadership was his colleague, George Brown. George Brown was a very talented man. He was on the right of the Labour Party. He was from a very working class, sort of stock humble background, a Londoner. Hmm. Um, but he had a fatal um, problem with drink. He was a horrendous alcoholic. And Wilson made him foreign secretary, partly to get him out of the country because he was sort of an embarrassment. But that, of course, meant that he went around the world being an embarrassment. And the most famous story about George Brown as foreign secretary um, which may be slightly apocryphal, is that he went to a diplomatic function um, in, um, well, there were various accounts of where it was, but it was a South American capital. And he turned up to this big function. He was absolutely wasted. He was sort of swaying and sweating profusely and all this. And um, I, I grabbed a drink and you know, downing all these drinks. And then at one point, he hears the band strike up. And as soon as he hears the band strike up, George Brown made a beeline for this gorgeous crimson-clad figure. And he said, my dear, would you care for the pleasure of a dance? And the gorgeous crimson-clad figure said, Mr. Brown, I will not dance with you for three reasons. And number one is that this music that you think is clearly think is a, is a waltz is um, it's the Peruvian national anthem, <laughs> act of great uh, rudeness to dance to it. Number two is I always vowed that I would never dance with a man who is drunk. And Mr. Brown, you're clearly very drunk. And the third reason why I won't dance with you is that I'm the Cardinal Archbishop of Lima. <laughs> um, so that's very, that's very that's funny. Thanks so much, and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I think we're near. We're at the end of our episode. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed it. Okay. Um, good luck with good luck with the rest of the history podcast. Continuing that. Uh, and your book, I believe, that you're writing at the moment. Maybe say a bit about that, um, your upcoming book. Yeah, a book about the conquistadors for children. Yes. One of my Adventures in Time series aimed at younger readers. Yeah, and also there's one on the mid-80s, I believe. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. I do this series for um, older readers yeah. um, about post-war Britain, and I've got up to the end of the Falklands War, and the next volume is going to be about the mid-80s. So that's the minor strike, the very minor strike and sort of heyday of Thatcherism. So thank you very much for having me Thanks on. Thanks so much uh, for coming on the podcast. I, 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 I'm sure your podcast will improve from this um, this shambolic beginning of this terrible, uninfluential and unimportant no, this guest. Is, this is awesome. much better guests <laughs> and much more exciting conversations. Yeah. And I commend it to the audience. Thanks so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank have you. a lovely right. week. Thank you. Bye. Brilliant. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Dialogos. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to follow this podcast for more interviews with more fascinating individuals. Thank you.